Hello everyone, it's November 12th, 2019. This week we're learning about parachutes and also the spacecraft attached to them. And we're talking to Andrew Rader about his new book, Beyond the Known, How Exploration Created the Modern World and Will Take Us to the Stars. Let's learn how to do that and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 235 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. And we have a new format. Yay! Yay! Yeah. So the show, we've rearranged it just a little bit, so we're... We're not going to do This Week in Spaceflight History right away. We'll get to it, though. We'll still start with our lovely banter, of course. But, um... <laughs> yes. Yes. Cue lovely banter. All right. Well, I didn't prepare any, so. <laughs> hey, Rocket Lab's 10th mission announced. What was the name of that? Uh, running it's, Out of Fingers? Yeah. It took me a minute, but then I got what that means. Yeah. Yeah, because it's number 10. I just want to say I love it. I, I think that's just the coolest idea to give these missions these funny names. If Elon can name his boats and barges and whatnot <laughs> crazy names, then why not an actual mission? I mean, every every patch is like awesome, pretty much. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I wonder what 11 will be. Well, I guess it probably depends on what they're launching yeah. and they'll come up yeah, with something. Exactly. But yeah. yeah, this this one, I guess, because it's, a, it's a, a ride share with seven different satellites mm -hmm. is why they didn't just give it, you know, it, it wasn't one specific mm -hmm. company that they could tailor the name to. So, so this is going to... Uh... ALE's re-entry fireworks are going to be tested on this. And I don't know where they're going to test them. And I doubt it's going to be over Northern California, but I really hope it's over Northern California. Oh, that would be something. <laughs> this is uh, the orbital fireworks, right, that mm -hmm. you're talking about, for those who don't know? Yeah, Ast Astro Live Experiences. I remember I specifically mm -hmm. wanted to look that up. That's another interesting niche little business case for space mm -hmm. or at least rocket launches, you know, that you could do some really cool fireworks and just think about like in the future, if maybe like the 4th of July is no longer traditional fireworks, but it's all just done from space. How cool would that be? I would be, be happy if we oh, could wow. ban terrestrial fireworks and just do real. Yeah. Re probably because fireworks. it scares the crap out of your dogs, right? Um, no, actually Reggie doesn't, doesn't mind that much. It's just all of the ash and all of the, the, uh, the smell is so annoying. Yeah, it's got a it's got a few problems. Yeah, because I mean the dogs thing. That's you know that's kind of pretty upsetting when you've got a yeah. little pooch that's quivering because of the uh, yeah. fireworks. And there's like some stat where like I don't know if it's basically some uh, statistically significant number of all dog escapes happen during the Fourth oh. of July when people lose their dogs because yeah they go running off. Quick, David, bring us back anyway. up. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> The big story this week is the Starliner pad abort test, which, you know, mm -hmm. all things considered went well. We weren't sure at first, but uh, there was a little bit of a hiccup, but it looks like it's not a big one, right? It, I think it turned out everybody was kind of rolling their eyes right afterwards when they said it was a successful test because it, mm -hmm. it didn't look very good, I guess. But when you actually it, look at yeah. what happened. No, no, you're right. It, it looked real bad. <laughs> what made it look bad to me was just that red smoke everywhere. I mean, that to me just says death or yeah. at least cancer. On ascent, on landing, it was kind of a uh, a big part of the, uh, the launch, or rather the abort. But of course, they're going to be coming down somewhere pretty close by, but I guess the idea is that they stay inside the capsule before it's safe to come out. There will be a rescue crew, and they will have their hazmat suits on or whatever, but they have mm -hmm. to get the astronauts out. It probably spraying water everywhere to try to passivate right. or right. capture yeah. as much of it out of the air. Right. But in most cases, you probably exactly land in the ocean, like Sam's saying, right? Most of the time, you wouldn't expect to be landing in New Mexico 100 feet away from the, the <laughs> uh, big uh, FRF red cloud. Yeah. 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 BFRC. Yeah, BFRC. So I think we should just nominally state what the test is before we get into the real nitty gritty, right? <laughs> this was uh, last week at White Sands. Starliner, right, needs to successfully complete this test before, you know, it can do its uh, basically fly up to the station. Uh, uncrewed with OFT, the orbital test flight, and then uh, eventually, you know, get crew there at some point uh, up to station. But uh, yeah, so the test was essentially the four escape thrusters firing uh, from the pad for five seconds, uh, taking it to a peak altitude of 1,350 meters. 
and then pop some shoots, uh, jettisons the service module, jettisons the heat shield, pops some airbags, and then lands uh, a little over a minute later, uh, in this case right next to a BFRC. So that's that's what happened, but the reason why I guess it's more newsworthy than, or more newsier than usual, is that there was a failure with one of the uh, parachutes deploying. One of three. One, one of three. Of, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a crew dragon will, will have four parachutes right and so it it gets to it gets to fail out one of them and uh starliner has three so it has to if it's going to fail out it's going to be landing on two parachutes which it did and it turns out the cause of that little anomaly with a chute was just because of a little pin connector or a little latching pin i guess you could say i'm not sure what it looks like but uh they say that that's what the issue was they had a pilot chute that did not drag out the main chute because there was no connection there. So that's a pretty simple problem to fix, although it is a little bit disconcerting that they had failed Mm -hmm. to, you know, put the pin in. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't realize. Yeah, so apparently it's I'm sure you guys knew this, but I had to do a little research. I I guess I could have figured what a pilot chute was because you always kind of see the little parachute go and then the big one comes. Mm -hmm. And so that's really all it is, is that, you know, you deploy the little guy and it's connected to the main chute. And so once it catches some load, it then opens and pulls out the main chute. So the reason that you have those is because to deploy a parachute, you really need to be able to yank it out of its, its bucket or its, you know, whatever container it's in. You need to be able to yank it out at pretty good speed so that it doesn't just flop and get tangled up. And so the bigger the parachute is, the harder it is to deploy it successfully. And so what they do is they deploy a small parachute, which is easy to fire out of a cannon, and they use the force from that to pull the big one out and pull it smoothly out and, and deploy it successfully. So apparently this pin wasn't quite there, and a uh, during the inspection... Uh, it wasn't quite there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, like basically it sounds like there's a loop essentially connecting the two, or that you put the pin through to get the two connected. But a uh, protective sheath around the loop uh, made it difficult to visually see if the pin wasn't in there correctly. And so they kind of uh, were able to verify that, you know, basically after doing a post-mortem, I guess, I guess they saw the main chute just still sitting in there kind of without a, the pilot chute came out, but the main chute just stayed in the uh, command module. I mean, it's, it's better than the, than the loop tearing free, right? Like, mm-hmm. right. Or the speculation that I was seeing was about oh. the hypergalls potentially yeah. burning through the chute's tether, which would definitely be a... Uh, uh, a design flaw that could yeah. probably have set things back uh, significantly. Yeah, no joke. Dan in the chat has got a, a really nice little uh, comment here because Dan understands parachutes much better than we do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, he says pilot shoots are also hugely important because the parachute needs to unfold after the riser has been tensioned. Otherwise, there will be extra momentum and the riser will actually break. Um, so the main chutes tend to be in a bag so that it doesn't catch air until the riser is nice and taut. And that's what you see if you look at the video. It's This is a really good example of that where you can actually see the uh, the parachutes coming out and then they kind of hold at the distance that the that the riser, the, the connection between the parachute and the spacecraft itself. And then they don't unfurl until that bag is pulled off of them. So they're really hard to see at first and they just kind of appear in midair. Um, and the only way to do that really is with... Uh, it's with a pilot chute. I didn't even think about that that mechanism, but uh, he, he's absolutely right. That's hmm. uh, that's another important mechanic okay. that you can do there. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a really clever way that you could do it. It might not be super reliable, but we already um, tend to deploy parachutes. I'm watching the video right now to see if they do this. But a, a common thing to do is to deploy parachutes in a reefed configuration where the um, uh, where the mouth of the airbag is or the mouth of the parachute is held closed partially closed and then um once they've uh deployed and you're ready to to apply more force on your spacecraft you can unreef them or maybe it's the other way around maybe that's when you reef them and let them deploy all the way so you kind of do a two-stage deploy yeah and that's exactly what uh what boeing has done here so i wonder since you can since you can reef an airbag without a pilot chute pulling out pins or something i wonder if there's a way to cleverly pull them out of a bag without a pilot chute, but I, I bet it wouldn't be super reliable and it's not that, that much more expensive in mass or, 
or materials to just add pilot shoots. So I found uh, a little bit more information on that cloud. So that right. was from about one gallon of uh, the nitrogen tetroxide. So wow. that's mm. not a whole lot. That was yeah. just one gallon's worth, and that's what caused the cloud. I had read that there's always a little bit of leftover amount, and that you know that's probably what came out. So there's no getting around that because they had just used yeah. the engines, and so yeah, because yeah. the. Uh, the the valve isn't at the mouth of the engine. <laughs> right. Sam in the chat says, uh, hopefully somebody at NASA remembers when ASTP crew got poisoned under similar circumstances. When on, on the way down, they uh, ASTP being the Apollo Soyuz Test Project Program, where they uh, they vented on the way down after they had started exchanging air with the atmosphere to vent the cabin, and they, and they got Oof. some uh, uh, propellant from the from the attitude thrusters got sucked in, which is not great. Okay, so Dennis, when uh, when are they gonna uh, launch Starliner for real? <laughs> so mercifully, given that this was human error and the shoots uh, are already packed for the uh, orbital flight test, uh, this hasn't really slipped that mission, and so they are still scheduled for December seventeenth. Uh, the Atlas V's being assembled; everything otherwise is seemingly proceeding nicely. Uh, like I mentioned, right, the shoots are already packed for the. Uh, OFT, but uh, they went and made damn sure that uh, the pins are in the right place based on the closeout <laughs> photos, <laughs> and they will be implementing pull tests on the shoots from now on to try to make sure that doesn't happen again. And so, really, it's just kind of a quality assurance issue rather than any kind of hardware. Which mm-hmm. I guess wait, wait, wait. So, so pull tests. So they're they're actually going to reach in there and and give a little tug on the line to make sure that it's connected. <laughs> That's how I read it. I mean, like. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it, that's 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 a good way to test it because that you know, but that's that's kind of funny. Go on, just give it a little tug. Yeah, a little little tug here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so that's some good news there. And then hopefully, you know, uh, if the orbital flight test goes well, then the uh, crewed flight test uh, will follow in 2020 with Chris Ferguson, Michael Finky, and Nicole Mann going to station. Wow. So, yeah. I thought it was, I thought it was pronounced Fink, Michael Fink. Is it Mike Fink? I I uh I didn't know one way or the other. Uh do you, do you know what uh what Fink's call sign is? Mm-mm. Spanky. Spanky. <laughs> All right, I'm sure like there's it. an interesting story behind that. All right, let's do short and sweet. What is the first one, Ben? So SpaceX has been developing their third generation of parachutes, and NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine says, I think that the Mark III parachutes, in my opinion, are the best parachutes ever by a lot. That's a little hyperbolic, but uh, (laughs) we'll take him at his word. SpaceX confirmed that not just one of their early Mark III tests failed, as rumored, but that in fact two early tests did both being single-shoot stress tests that yielded edge case failure data that led to further improvements on the design. A, quote, rapid cadence of testing, unquote, is required to get the parachutes qualified by the end of the year and could include as many as 10 additional tests, though the company says at one point they completed 12 parachute tests within a single week. Wow. Yeah, that's impressive. Next up, China tests some grid fins. On November 2nd, China successfully launched a Long March 4B carrying the Gaofen 7 Earth Observation Satellite. For the first time, Gridfins on the rocket's first stage successfully guided it back to crash in the designated zone downrange. The Long March 6, under development, hopes to use Gridfins to propulsively land similar to SpaceX's Falcon 9. Another first is Gaofen 7's propulsion system, developed by French company ThrustMe, which uses solid iodine as its cold gas propellant. And then lastly, the ISS Macy reduced crew for six and a half months. So this came out of nowhere. I didn't know about this, but now I do. the next Soyuz crew launch scheduled for April 9th will carry cosmonauts and one astronaut to the ISIS where they will join three other crew for a little over a week, after which those three will return, possibly leaving the station with only three people for six and a half months. This will depend on whether commercial crew is ready before the next scheduled Soyuz launch. Whether that launch will carry an American astronaut has yet to be negotiated with Roscosmos, but according to NASA, it is very likely. Yeah, so starting in April of next year, there might only be three people for a six and a half month period. And did you guys know about that well we we talked about the worry yeah. about whether or not they'd have to buy some more seats with Roscosmos cosmos because of the um commercial crew kind of 
being delayed. But I thought that that would have been addressed before something like this would happen, but that's mm. not the case. So they might just be stuck with three people for six months. I mean, yeah, I didn't know about that specifically. Yeah. Christina Cook's doing the long term. That's right. <laughs> that's uh, the one possibility. Isn't uh, Chris Cassidy going up on the next launch? I think they were talking about him being uh, a, the single. Uh, American on ISS for a little bit. It's Chris Cassidy and two other cosmonauts, and then that's it. I think Cook is likely to get an extended mission, but that's not how it's being reported by people who actually know what's going on. <laughs> All right, well, welcome to our interview that we have. This should be really exciting, given that... um. <laughs> this is quite the book. Uh, after reading this, uh, I'm pretty uh, looking forward to picking your brain. So uh, we have uh, Andrew Rader here, who is an aerospace engineer and author of Beyond the Known, which uh, by the time you're hearing this podcast should be uh, out and available for purchase. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Good morning. I got to say, I... Uh... I love the book. And one thing as I was doing a little uh, background reading after I had finished uh, the book that uh, in retrospect doesn't surprise me at all is that one of the things I really enjoyed was kind of just how much knowledge you had slammed in there, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> the footnotes in particular, I thought yeah, were like, yeah. I opened like 20 new tabs on my <laughs> uh, MacBook uh, just from the footnotes alone. And I had seen, before we really get deep into the book, I saw that you were on a television series, which doesn't surprise me, given that it's called Canada's Greatest Know-It-All. Um, <laughs> I think that really uh, synergized with what I had seen in the book. And so, um, could you tell us a little about that before we get into the real meat and potatoes of the interview? Just because that sounds like such a fun thing and kind of a unique uh, experience that most of us don't get to uh, really encounter people who've been on TV like that before. Yeah, it totally was. It was it was the most fun experience ever, actually. It was nine episodes, Canada's Grace and Odal, but it wasn't kind of like a quiz show. There was a little bit of that. There were a few times where we had almost like a Jeopardy board and answering questions, but mostly it was a do-it-all. <laughs> if I had to describe it, it would be like Mythbusters, uh, competitive Mythbusters. So it's basically, we had a challenge every day. We'd wake up in the morning and they'd kind of blindfold us and take us to a different location. And it's exactly like Survivor, but it was like Science Survivor or, or Engineering Survivor. And they take us to a new location and we had to build something. We had to build like a giant catapult or potato gun or we had to jump out of a plane and unscramble letters. We had to go scuba diving and defuse a bomb underwater. It's a lot of that. build a bridge across um, a stretch of water. It was, yeah, it was just like all kinds of building things. We had to build a way to harness energy. So we built a windmill. And, and a generator hmm. system, all that kind of stuff. So it was just tremendous amount of fun. I mean, my favorite challenge was the geography challenge because I'm such a geography nerd that one of the hmm. challenges was just to put it put together a map of the world in an hour. And I thought that was like the best thing ever. <laughs> it's like, yeah, oh, wow. Kid in Candyland. But yeah. So um, <laughs> yeah, super fun. About five years ago. And uh, you can find some episodes online, but it's hard to find in the US, I guess. it's uh, It was a Canadian show. Mm. So actually, that kind of leads into the book a little bit. The thing that really surprised me was that you have a very extensive knowledge, or at the very least, a huge interest in history, because this is a very mm -hmm. historical book. And I mean, it does focus on the history of exploration, but you start from the beginning of humanity and then you kind of like work your way up to the present day and so that is a large span of time so exactly <laughs> what got you so interested in i guess history um because i'm assuming that you do have a huge passion for that as well absolutely yeah when i was trying to decide what i wanted to study in the university history was definitely way up there on the list i guess i just decided engineering was more practical but the interest was almost equal. And I tried to do as much history as possible, even in university. I, I did a minor in undergrad in history. So I just kept that going. And I, you know, I read just a lot of books. I read like a book mm. a week and it's all history basically. So I just, it's, it's what my real kind of hobby interest is, is in history. And I kind of see it as the same arc. I mean, this book in a sense is almost like Andrew's way to view the world. <laughs> it's kind of like the start of humanity <laughs> into the future. And it's this, I see all of humanity is this like historical arc where we develop technologies because of the incentives of exploration. And it's the same story it's always been. Humans have always basically been the same genetically. So we're just always exploring and learning things. And you can see this even with like kids learning things. Uh, so it's on different levels. It's, it's on the level of the individual learning micro things. And then it's on the, uh, the level of the band going out and kind of 
exploring new territories and developing new resources. And then it's on the level of the civilization. Civilizations that are open and, and embrace new ideas are the ones that prosper. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's kind of always been that way. So it's this arc of um, humanity into the future, I think. Uh, and that's why I feel like it's really connected. It's like aerospace engineering. It's kind of similar in a sense. There, and and I, I see like exploration as testing hypotheses. Like Magellan and Columbus, they, they didn't know what was out there, so they went to find out, right? And mm -hmm. it's the same thing as with developing airplanes and, and eventually spaceships. There's Engineering is this iterative process. So you don't know something, so you try it, see if it works. If it works, great. If it doesn't work, then discard it and try something else. And it's kind of similar. Totally. And, and, and in particular, yeah, the technology that you're talking about here, there was a lot that was totally brand new to me after reading this because I, <laughs> I am not much of a history person. So I guess coming from a very, uh, kind of ignorant about a lot of history was probably a, a big part of why I, really enjoyed the book so much because I, I do love learning new things and I definitely got a lot out of it. You know, it's it's almost like a, it feels to me like a, a platitude to just say that, you know, history is related to the present and kind of drives the future. You know what I mean? Like there's this connection there. And I feel like we all know this, but for me, at least, I couldn't really think of that many examples of that happening. But one that like still stands out is the idea that Columbus's ships, I had no idea that they basically weren't really meant for kind of, you know, large oceanic voyages. And yet, because of this drive that you talk about, right, of wanting humans wanting to go and explore, he went and basically did what he could with the ships that he had and you know, barely made it. But eventually, I guess that drove, you know, technology to want to make, you know, bigger seafaring ships, kind of like the Chinese had had earlier, but kind of right. walked away from in the past. Does that sound like a sensible kind of uh, <laughs> reading? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think in particular for space exploration, that's one of the biggest lessons is that technology follows purpose. So you set a purpose first. We chose to go to the moon. We didn't know how. <laughs> and by setting a goal, we developed the technologies to get us there. And this is the same thing if we want to become like Star Trek. When, when I was a kid, I wanted to invent warp drive and I thought space was really cool, but more in a Star Trek kind of sense <laughs> and jumping from planet to planet and, and uh, star system to star system and meeting the aliens. But mm -hmm. And I thought sort of regular space, what we could do with the space station and all that kind of stuff was a little bit boring. What's the point? of that. But but then I had this kind of epiphany about how sort of technology works and it's really incremental and also it's mm. it's driven by incentive like everything. It's almost like freakonomics, right? People respond to incentives. And if you go and try to do something challenging at the leading edge of technology, at the bare edge of what's possible, that creates the incentives that improve our technology and that drive us to do more ambitious things and then it equips us with the tools to set our goal further and further and it's constantly kind of it's it's just like a natural way of driving technology and i think that's really one of the main things that exploration is as you say columbus said it was ships that weren't suited to the atlantic because they didn't exist yet and they never would have been invented mm -hmm. if there wasn't a reason to invent them by having people across the other side of the ocean like why do you think we have transcontinental airliners and and uh naval vessels that can go across the ocean in a week and all this kind of stuff. It's because we had people on the other side of the ocean. There was a reason to get there. It's the same thing for Mars. Mm -hmm. Like if we want to go to Mars, we have to kind of go there with what we have and then it will drive the technology to improve our spacefaring capabilities, which will eventually lead to us going beyond our solar system. Right. It's a feedback loop of sorts. Yeah, totally. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so one thing that I got from the book, it seems that throughout history, the main or at least the primary motivation for exploration was actually profit. So I'm wondering, mm -hmm. how does that apply to space? Because there is, you know, a lot of talk about how that can be commoditized or something, but mm -hmm. I don't really entirely see that argument as being a valid one. There are plenty of good reasons to go, but I don't know if a profit would be one of them. And if not, how else do we make life beyond low Earth orbit, at least something that we can actually do? Because I just don't know what the real argument is there. Or at least I'm playing devil's advocate. And, you know, I guess I would like you to answer that question. I'm not saying that I completely agree with it. <laughs> yeah. So motivations have varied. And you're right that profit has been a very large incentive for exploration throughout history. I mean, it's the reason for the Dutch East Indies Company and the British East Indies Company. It's basically the reason for Magellan and to some extent Columbus too, although Columbus was really motivated by, for religious reasons actually, uh, wanted to like found a new crusade and <laughs> reconquer the Holy Land. Uh, if you read his books, it's, he's kind of a, 
a religious uh, zealot, I would say. But uh, and there were other throughout history other motivations, like Pythias the Greek certainly didn't do it for profit. He was just motivated by knowledge, and he's one of the first people from the ancient world to walk on foot before. Northern Europe was connected with the Mediterranean to walk on foot through France and England and kind of describe what he saw. He was the first person to connect the moon, the cycles of the moon to the tides and uh, make observations of the Arctic. So that, that's been a, a motivating force. And I see kind of the space race almost as the uh, enlightenment version of exploration. So if you look at um, exploration during the early age of exploration, which means Columbus and Magellan and stuff, that was motivated by profit to try to get the spices basically but there was a later age which was during the late 1600s early 1700s which was driven by the enlightenment so you have cook going out and exploring the pacific really just for scientific purposes um they were trying he sailed to tahiti to observe the transit of venus and he uh, mapped the the rest of the world, basically the South Pacific, to try to determine if there was a continent there. There were a number of French expeditions. One of my favorite is Bougainville, um, who pops up all kinds of places in history, but no one's really heard of him. Uh, he's in that movie, Last of the Mohicans, which I really like, but he's just like, he has one line. <laughs> so I think it's kind of funny because he's this famous explorer <laughs> that has one line in, in this movie, in this Hollywood movie. But uh, yeah, so, I, and also if you look at exploration, the Arctic, that almost was completely devoid of commercial purpose. I mean, in the North, there was maybe the Northwest Passage bit of it, but particularly the race to get to the pole, there was no mm-hmm. uh, no economic reason for it at all. And, and, and the South Pole in Antarctica, no commercial value. So I don't think it's true that profit has been the only or even it's definitely a big motivation throughout history. But it's 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 one of many, I would say. That being said, mm-hmm. I do think it's a, it's a very important one to establish for space. I think the best connection, it's hard to say, like going to Mars, I don't think really we're doing it for profit. We may be doing it for diversity in a sense, like having humans in different places gives us perspective, which helps drive technology and maybe solutions to problems and technological growth and that mm. kind of thing. But but that's not a profit. So to answer your question, I think the only real connection I could make, other than uh, orbital space, which there is a huge connection to profit, if you can get like space-based internet or solar power, which I'm not sure I totally believe in the solar power part of it, but uh, hydroponic farms and stuff like that. But there's a lot that we can do. Obviously, space itself right now is a hugely profitable industry in low Earth orbit, right? Or in orbit, in Earth orbit. Uh, But going beyond, the best case for profit, I think, is based on asteroid mining, which if you look at the asteroids that are out there, so Earth, Earth is kind of interesting because it kind of condensed from a lot of materials that were just floating around in the solar system, just like all the other planets. But the heavy stuff went to the core and Earth's crust is Mm -hmm. really poor in metals. And so all the gold and platinum and even some of the iron and stuff like that rained down on our planet later because it's found in abundance in that basic material that created our planet, which is the asteroids. So there's a lot more valuable materials, rare earth metals, platinum, gold, that kind of stuff in asteroids than there is on our planet. And I think that's the best case you can make. It's it's currently, I would say, probably borderline or definitely uh, unprofitable to harvest right now. But if we can reduce the cost of access to space, which I think is the most important thing we can possibly do, which is why I work at SpaceX, mm-hmm. if we can reduce the cost of access to space, we can make asteroid mining actually profitable, probably. And that would, I mean, there's enough in a single asteroid there's enough metals to sustain our civilization for millions of years and it could be gathered at a much lower cost and um, with much less environmental damage than on earth if we can reduce the cost of access to space and make it actually so that there is a profitable return real quick though so one question that i i just have to know the answer to so yeah um we would have to have a reduced cost of access to space but then uh once you get that precious metal back to i guess like lower orbit how do you get it down to the ground if that is the idea <laughs> yeah i don't uh, know how that crashing in the middle of australia <laughs> <laughs> something yeah. like that i guess <laughs> Um, I think that's probably the best bet is crash it into some, or in the Sahara is closer to the equator, crash it into somewhere that is, um, to, you know, not going to threaten a lot of people. Um, so some wow, desert okay. somewhere or something like that, right? That That is a great point that you make is that while the business case might not be there for asteroid mining right now, it's still like physically possible and accessible as opposed to essentially going into the, you know, the mantle 
of the earth right now. Like, mm, I feel like yeah, that's yeah. something that would be, I mean, that's not feasible at this point in our technology, if I understand correctly. I mean, we've never even gotten through the crust and let alone, you know, the business case of being able to get precious metals that are locked away in our, forget about our core. That's absolutely inaccessible. And so I guess it's just a matter of, you know, uh, when does the business case exist as opposed to when does the technology get there? Because I imagine if, like, we could do that now. We've done sample returns. So, I mean, yeah. If Earth were an apple, we would not have pierced the skin. That's how deep we've gone. <laughs> that's a, that's perspective. <laughs> so I'm curious then, given that, you know, technology is incremental and we're also motivated by just this kind of desire to explore and discover, where are you on the sort of uh, moon first or just going right to Mars sort of perspective for exploration? What do you, what, I mean, what do you think about where we're going right now? I mean, I'm definitely more Mars. I, I kind of think the moon is... Yeah, like maybe fine. I don't have a problem with it, but uh, it it seems to <laughs> detract from the main purpose. I don't think there's enough benefit. If our goal is Mars, then there's not, not mm -hmm. enough benefit to be gained from going to the moon to justify it. That being said, I don't really have a problem if people want to do that. And I do think that somewhere is better than nowhere. And I do think that having a destination is really important. So if people decide that they really want to go to the moon and NASA, let's say NASA decides they really want to go to the moon, which kind of seems like the case nowadays, better than nothing, I guess, you know, um, and I think it, it is helpful, but it's not helpful enough to justify it if the goal is Mars. I mean, think about space, right? Like compared to the ocean, what's the purpose of going to space or going to the ocean? Um, it's to cross it to get to the other side. We don't go to the ocean to float around on a ship. I mean, I guess you take cruises and stuff. And it's the same with space. You could like have space tourism where you're kind of like looking down at Earth and floating around in zero G and stuff for fun. But the main purpose of going to space is to cross it to get to the other side. So you have to think about what is the other side? Why are we going? Right. And just if you think about the differences between Mars and the moon, Mars could really support a long term human settlement, whereas the moon, not really. I mean, it's safer. It's closer. I think the fact that it's more visible in the sky is kind of cool, actually, because you could look up and see like a moon base, maybe. But other than that, like it's kind of, I mean, just the day night length, uh, more radiation, less resources of all kinds, uh, less gravity. There's just so many reasons why it's just not as good. Uh, so, yeah, I dig, I dig. So uh, actually, I do want to go back real quick to something that was mentioned earlier about the Chinese explorers in the early 14th century. Um, there was one in particular, Zheng He, which I've never heard of him before. This was really interesting. You kind of ran like this little like counterfactual and you said like, you know, what if China had not closed its doors and actually continued exploration, then they might have even reached a new world. And I had never considered that because I just didn't even know about it really. But I'm wondering now, do you think that something like that is possible for humanity as a whole like that's a strange type of a motivation well they had their own particular reasons which was that they just didn't want to have anything to do with the outside world but do you think something like that could happen again because we have to continue to move outward but at the same time there's no real reason or you know we also don't have to because it's been something that has happened throughout humanity's history so how do we prevent that from happening again yeah so you're talking about basically ending up like china and stopping exploring and just never going to space and eventually, you know, having our technology decline and we no longer know how to maintain our technology and we end up kind of in a decadent uh, post-technological era. <laughs> it's kind of like mm -hmm. the Eloy and the Time Machine or uh, Brave New World mm -hmm. or something like that, which I think is actually a, a very dangerous possible future. I think that may even be the most likely scenario why we may be in the long run in trouble and also why there may not be any aliens like the Fermi's paradox because they just get too good at entertaining themselves and just make movies about going to space and don't bother actually doing it. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, and I think it is a legitimate fear and danger, but it's also counter to human nature to some extent. And the question is, can we fool ourselves into pretending we're doing uh, amazing things and, and adventurous things? rather than actually doing them? And for some people, I think the answer is yes. And for others, the answer might be no. Because if you think about humanity, we've always been restless wanderers. And I think it's really like the urge to explore 
no one told people to go to the Arctic or Antarctic. They just wanted to do it because, hey, it's cool. No one's ever done it before. And like, hey, let's try something until no one's ever done. So it's kind of like exploration is uh, all it takes is a few people. Like throughout history, it's always been small groups of people who, who have led this this change, right? And dragging the rest of civilization. Like probably most people in Europe in 1500 were like, I'm definitely not getting on that boat <laughs> to go across the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> like what? And it was like really small groups of people, right? And people were uneducated and stuff like that. These days, there's so many more people who participate in technological advancement. There's, you know, China trains millions of scientists and engineers every year. So I don't think we're in very much danger of going backwards. We may be in danger of stagnating and we may be in danger of kind of deciding it's not worth it. It's just like, why bother kind of thing, apathy. But but then it only takes a few people to change that, right? You have Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and people who are just like really interested in doing this who want to do it. So people aren't going to stop progress or stop all these kind of adventures, uh, even if they don't individually want to participate, right? So it's, it's, a, it's, it's definitely a valid question, but I don't, I think I kind of fall on the side, I guess, of we're going to keep doing it. It's hard to predict at what rate, but I think we're going to keep going out into space and keep exploring. Yeah, it, it would take yeah something pretty darn significant to be able to kind of stop us for a long yeah. enough period of time. Yeah, you can imagine like severe environmental degradation. And it's not that like climate change is going to kill us all. It's more that maybe it has a severe economic impact that makes it really expensive and really difficult to focus on anything else. Something like that. Now, I've been holding off, but Andrew, you brought up aliens. <laughs> <laughs> the last uh, couple chapters, when you really talk on kind of, you know, the future, uh, then we have to start bringing up things like the Fermi paradox, right? Why do we appear to be alone in our galaxy when, you know, if intelligent life arose once in the last 10 billion years, you can imagine if it had the drive to explore like we did, then it would, should have basically spread throughout the entire galaxy. Mm -hmm. But, yeah. um, yeah, I guess my question for you is that, well, first a comment and then a question. Uh, my comment is that I teach uh, a gen ed class on astrobiology mm. and you basically summed up the class in two chapters, <laughs> like however many pages that was. And it was fantastic to read because it wasn't like the superficial treatment I got. Like you went in under the hood in some portions where I'm like, damn, I thought I was kind of doing that as sort of value added in my classroom. And so I'm curious, uh, like, how interested are you in this subject? Do some astrobiology textbooks make it into your book a week uh, repertoire? Or was this kind of a, you know, a practical matter that you had to really uh, research for the book? I consulted a few. Chris McKay has a book, uh, sort of a compilation of papers, and I read a bunch of papers by him. Um, he studies sort of Mars astrobiology, I guess. Yeah, but so I have, I should say, I have a strong background in biology. I almost went to med school and took like organic chemistry and stuff like that. And uh, I was super, super into biology at the time uh, back in, in university. Um, and actually, like even in engineering, my thesis was, was on genetic algorithms. So it was kind of like a biology applied to. Oh, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And, and my aerospace was actually human factor. So there's like a lot of kind of biology there too. So I, I wouldn't say so much astrobiology, for ex example, but, you know, I read like all Richard Dawkins evolution books and that kind of thing. I think those were probably an inspiration. So I, I don't really know <laughs> the answer about the aliens <laughs> thing and, and what they would be like. And so the, the answer, so just all the future chapters, because they don't know really what is going to happen, um, kind of go mm -hmm. through the possibilities and say what some, why some are more likely and less likely. And, the Fermi paradox is a really interesting one because, yeah, it's it's kind of true if you think about it. It does sort of imply that there's no aliens in our galaxy that have come before us, at least. Or else, there's I think there's three explanations that are kind of really reasonable. One is that they destroy themselves. Uh, the other is that they become apathetic and don't explore, uh, just like we were talking about earlier. Or the third is kind of the zoo hypothesis, meaning they just leave us alone and why bother with us? So I guess the other is maybe they just kind of don't happen to be here for some reason and, and 
will eventually come here. I don't know. Yeah. No, it's, it's, the jury is, yeah, still out <laughs> big time on that. Well, I mean, it, it seems that just given how big space is, there is always a possibility that they're out there and that we just don't know. I think at one point in the book, you had pointed out that at the distance that transmissions from Earth have traveled, we would probably not even be able to detect them at that distance. So you would have to be listening with some very sophisticated equipment, like even to be able to know that the signals are there. So, like, what if there are transmissions that are coming from all over the galaxy, but we just can't pick them up because it would be very faint. I mean, that's one explanation among a whole host of others. And I do tend to think that maybe the solution is it, it's actually probably something like, like all of the above. That's how I justify it in my own brain because I don't want to believe that, you know, it's uh, just us. Yeah, that's something I was really surprised by. And if you look at just, so it sounds like we've been transmitting for a long time, more than 100 years, but that's mm-hmm. less than 1% of our galaxy alone. And mm-hmm. it's a relatively sparse part of the galaxy. And uh, yeah, yeah, because of signal decay, we wouldn't be able to detect ourselves at more than a light yep. year. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, so yep. we're to, to, so to say that there's no aliens based on Fermi's paradox, I mean, well, the Fermi's paradox really implies that they should be here, that they should kind of want to settle all useful territory, which is kind of an, a big assumption, like, oh, any kind of Earth-like planet out there, they're going to want to settle. Is that necessarily true? I, I don't know. Like. It's hard to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but uh, but we're also assuming because they're almost certainly much, much more technologically advanced than us, because they would have to be just by the rate of technological growth versus evolution. Um, it's It would be an extreme astronomical coincidence if there were Klingons and Romulans who had the same level of technology as us. <laughs> like, that's just mm-hmm. not likely <laughs> to happen, right? So we're assuming that they would have very good technology to detect those signals. But, I mean, we don't have that technology, so maybe that's the answer for us as to why we don't know. Correct, correct. And, and you're right. And why would they necessarily broadcast at ridiculously wasteful bands and stuff like that if they can have, like, right. some kind of super efficient laser comm or some kind of weird uh, quantum mm-hmm. communication or something like that? They're probably not transmitting radio signals across the galaxy because it's just like super, it's a super primitive thing to do. It's like smoke signals. <laughs> so right. <laughs> you're right. Yeah. You're right. That's a good way to put it. I like that. So Andrew, one of the, one of the questions that we get from listeners all the time is asking for advice either for early career moves or for just picking what kind of education they want to do. So uh, you have a like a PhD from MIT, I guess. Is that right? Is my memory serving me correctly? Correct. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Good. So, uh, that, you know, that's often considered like top tier sort of like this is pretty much the, the highest education you can, you can get the most valuable education you can get. Um, but I, I'd love to hear about what led you to, you know, to getting a PhD, what, um, led you to engineering as a profession. And if you have any advice for how young people can sort of get from zero to, you know, 60, I mean, that, that whole journey is so, uh, difficult and varied, but I, I'd love to hear if you have any advice for um, specifically young people. I had a lot of interests when I was young. Uh, as you can probably tell from the book, it has a lot of different subjects in it. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I, I kind of was leaning towards, I liked science a lot when I was younger. and But I also liked history. So I sort of considered, should I do something artsy or sciencey and try to be a doctor or something like that? Or engineering i mean i got into airplanes through history actually i got into engineering literally through history because i really liked world war ii warplanes and i became Mm -hmm. an aerospace engineer basically because i wanted to build build historical airplanes (laughs) Mm. Um, (laughs) and then when i got to school to to university uh so an aerospace engineer i guess i chose because it sounded cool and because it was it was practical enough that i could find a job right like i was kind of worried that if i went into history it would be really tough like, what could I do with it? I could become like an archivist or something like that. I could become a professor. But but it's pretty narrow, you know, The there's mm-hmm. not a lot of opportunities for that. So it was sort of a mix of the practical. I thought it was important to A, choose something I was interested in, but B, choose something that I thought I could make a good career of. So I just combined the two of those, the, the Venn diagram, I guess, <laughs> of those things. <laughs> and engineering kind of popped out of that. But I wasn't that interested in space until I got to university and a friend of mine, my roommate, who he was really interested in going to space and Mars. And I, was, I thought, oh, that's kind of stupid. Like, what's the point of that? So he <laughs> um, gave me some books to read about it. And he really kind of changed my perspective on it and get me thinking about the incremental development thing. 
Anyway, so career-wise, I still kind of didn't know what I wanted to do after undergrad. I thought, so I went into undergrad wanting to build airplanes, and I came out a little bit mixed of airplanes are still cool, but I'm interested in space. But it was sort of right around the transitory period, so I thought, well, if I'm going to look into this space stuff some more, I probably need to keep going in school and kind of refocus into that, and a master's degree mm -hmm. doesn't really hurt. So I decided to just do a master's degree because I didn't really know what job I wanted to go out and get yet. I kind of, actually, I really like teaching. So I thought I might want to be a professor. And so I just, I did a master's. And then at the end of that, I still thought, well, you know what, like, I really want to study like human space flight. And I kind of like being a professor too. And so I, I went to MIT for, for my PhD, just to kind of study human space flight and possibly teach. And it's sort of like a backup plan. Honestly, if you know what you want to do, and there's like a company you want to work for, or you want to Build, found your own company or whatever it is don't do a phd <laughs> like it's 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 like three or four it's like four four or five years really of time that you could be working and developing your career for me i'm, I'm sort of glad i did it because it was just interesting and a fun thing to do and also i guess it's like a bit of a fallback if i ever want to go to teach which i do enjoy but in terms of my actual day-to-day -day career it's useful but it wasn't useful enough that it would be just that it, the time would be justified. So I wouldn't suggest you do it if you know what you want to do. I kind of did it because I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I liked teaching, I think. In science, I think that's a little bit different because I think most scientists, advanced scientists, do have PhDs because they're doing like theoretical research at the leading edge. But for engineering, it's a little bit different and you just need to be practical, have experience, and you have to have the fundamentals, but you don't, you're not like sitting in a room with a blackboard working out new theories, basically. It's, re it's really applied. So, so for engineering, I would not recommend doing a PhD unless you want to teach or have a specific reason for it. Um, yeah, and so career, career, I guess I, well, honestly, I, so I was from Canada and it was tough to, it was tough to get a job in the US. So I went to apply f to a Canadian aerospace company, which was also really interesting because I got to design microsats, um, my small satellites with a specific mission. So um, very interesting and mission focused. Uh, and that was a lot of fun. And that really led quite well to my current position, which is managing space launches, which have satellites. So I'm on the uh, other side of the fence right now, but mm -hmm. um, learning about really how everything works for a space mission, orbital mechanics and thermodynamics and mechanical structures and uh, electrical interfaces, radiation, all kinds of, you know, basically everything you need to know for a space mission is probably a list of like 30 things. Um, and so I got a good general exposure to that. Yeah, I'm kind of a generalist actually in my career too, which is actually really unusual for an engineer. And um, it's not typical for a company. It's not typical for SpaceX even. So uh, for most engineers, it's better to focus on something specific and become a master at doing, you know, a certain type of analysis It's interesting or to it me that you say that that that's a little unusual at SpaceX because Elon has talked about how everybody has to understand the whole project. And he talks about how if you have too many teams getting too specialized, they sort of, they wind up duplicating efforts or not questioning uh, requirements and not understanding the intention of another team's work. So it's, it's interesting that that's the way that you've characterized it is you being more generalized than most people there. Well, actually, see, you're totally right. I think that SpaceX, the individual people are more generalized than at most other companies um, because you're right, they do have to understand interfaces and there is a lot of kind of back and forth between groups and, and things like that. But it's just, I guess, compared with like most people are like one type of engineer, they can transition to mm. two different types uh, it's true, but if you're kind of like a mechanical engineer, you generally do mechanical stuff. But you're totally right that even if you are a mechanical engineer, you should have a, a broader perspective of what's going on with the system. So that that's definitely true. Mm. But it's just that my responsibilities are literally oh sure multiple like thirty like thirty different things type types of things. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> but but not as deep, but not as deep sort of. Uh, understanding how everything works but not to the same level as as someone who is a specialist i guess okay thank you for for kind of giving us a little overview i, th I think it's really interesting that almost the first thing out of your mouth was don't get a phd um <laughs> it's true i wouldn't say i regret it but but it's not uh, worth the time depending on what you're planning to do yeah, yeah. 
I wanted to mention one other thing, um, which was in your book that I really loved. You mentioned um, uh, the Tuatara, the New Zealand oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, lizard, right? It's a lizard. Is it a lizard? Yeah, maybe. What is a lizard? We humans like to throw definitions around things, boxes on things. <laughs> well, we can say for sure it's a reptile. Let's let's stop there. Um, but it's one of the one of the few, maybe one of the several uh, species that has a third eye. And you you mentioned mm. it talking about um, what life on other planets might look like and and body layouts not really being hard coded into the physics of the way life works. And I just, I really appreciated the mention of, of weird biology. And, and now I understand because you, you know, you're a biology guy as well. So <laughs> in the box jellyfish, this was something I didn't know. And actually chitons too, I think it's pronounced chitons have eyes all over their bodies. Uh, I mean, I think they're kind of more like light sensitive. I don't think they're like fully focusing eyes, but still it's mm-hmm. kind of crazy. Right. But you do think about like, so there's, there's a couple of reasons why most organisms are, well, are very similar because we all share a common ancestor. But why is it that we have two of everything except for major organs like hearts and stuff like that? It's, it's interesting because there's a good rationalization for it. You can rationalize why that's true. It's minimum redundancy. Uh, I mean, it's bilateral symmetry. It's like ba- being able to focus, having two eyes, for example. And it's easy to encode in, in DNA as well. Exactly. Yeah, it's reusing it. But why... And it would be harder to coordinate to, to coordinate if you had three or four. Like, it would be hard to have four eyes trying to look at the same thing, right? Like, although we could theoretically, you could imagine, like, what would it, what would a creature experience if it had more than two eyes? Uh, would it have kind of like split screen? <laughs> Is it like that? I, I'm really curious how it would be to have eyes on the back of your head. Would it be like you, you just have like this, this two monitors kind of thing side by side and you kind of like choose to, your tension between the two? I think it would be like that because your eyes, like you actually focus, you only use really one eye at a time, right? For, for many things. And you, you can do this with like your hand and you can see you close one eye and your perspective changes actually as you close one eye or the other. So I think it kind of would be, you'd, you'd shift your attention between the yeah. four oh, eyes. Well, I mean, we, we already have a big blind spot in the middle of our vision that we completely ignore. So I'll, I'll bet you, given that our brains, we don't know about aliens' brains, but our brains are really good at knitting our sensory perceptions into one seamless coherent idea of the world around us i'll bet you if you if you had multiple gaps in your vision you know you could see forward and see backwards and not out to the sides i bet you their brains would be really good at ignoring whatever was out to the side but given given there are sort of rationalizations why creatures have two of everything does that mean we should expect aliens to have two of everything i mean predominantly we do have exceptions on earth and obviously there'd be exceptions out there but would most aliens tend to have two arms and two legs and and eyes for that reason maybe but maybe not it's hard to say it's hard to say whether we're just rationalizing to ourselves why they'd be like us or if there's a real argument there that's that's always kind of been my gut argument against you know the ufo aliens right they just look way too much like us. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But but there are also, you can go through a whole step of, of arguments of why it, our body plan actually makes sense and therefore why mm-hmm. they might actually be sort of similar. Like yeah. uh, Con- Convergent. Yeah. <laughs> it, convergence. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like the ichthyosaur and the dolphin and the shark all look similar, but they don't, it's not because of some shared ancestor. It's just because they have shared function. Well, then I guess in that case, the real question is, what kind of environments do they come yep. from? Because that will actually determine the biology. Yep. Certainly more than anything. Totally. So. Yeah. Like, like we, it's, it's almost just a random chance. There's nothing special about vis- visible light. It's kind of weird that we just see in this very, it's an incredibly narrow range of the electromagnetic spectrum. And colors, obviously, are just like this perception in our brain. It's like a placeholder in our brain. They're not, they don't actually exist. <laughs> There's no such thing as a color. It's just our perception of it, right? Um, so so yeah. you can imagine just as equally rich a uh, range of perceptions in the infrared or the ultraviolet or microwaves or whatever it is, right? It's just because visible light comes from our sun and bounces around. So, Andrew, thank you so much for talking to us. Um, could you tell us uh, when your book comes out and where to get a hold of it? Yeah, I think it'll probably be out by the time this airs. It's out November 12th. You can get a hold of it anywhere that books are sold. Uh, so it should be in most bookstores. If not, you can order it and it also will definitely be online in multiple locations. You can actually get a signed copy through my website, andrewrader.com. If you just Google my name, Andrew Rader, you'll find it. Uh, I would highly recommend the audiobook, actually. That's coming out November 12th uh, also. And 
I hope it's good. <laughs> I, I recorded it a few weeks ago. Uh, it was, it's a real marathon. <laughs> so we have two final questions that we traditionally ask our interviewees. Um, you've pretty much covered the first one, which is where would you like to be found on the internet? Um, so your website, and then you're also very active on Twitter. Um, could you give us your Twitter handle, please? Yeah, Twitter is Mars Raider. M-A-R-S-R-A-D-E-R. -E Perfect. Uh, anything else you'd like to plug? I guess SpaceX.com. <laughs> oh, so you got the podcast, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I have a podcast called Spellbound, uh, which you can find on anywhere you can find podcasts. I have some children's books. If you go to my website, you can find everything, basically. I Actually, so I have children's books uh, about space. I have four. Uh, three, one's being re-released, so a series called Epic Space Adventure, which has uh, th three books for children. And then uh, I have a space game also, which is a space strategy game, kind of like a 4X game where you go out and uh, settle and conquer the solar system, basically, uh, which is coming out next yeah. year. It's called Stellar Horizons, and it's by Compass Games. And our final question is, if you could take one object with you into space, what would that be? So this is just a fun little question. And... Uh... <laughs> You can give us a fun little answer. <laughs> Something for survival, but assuming all my needs are met. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I guess mm -hmm. right. we're talking we're talking zero G, right? Yeah. Actually, mm -hmm. you know, a plant a plant might be a really good one. See how the plant grows and stuff like that. It's kind of an experiment, but it's also a reminder of home. So it's kind of doubles as both. Oh wait, wait, what? If, it could be like a little mouse or a hamster or something like that. That'd be cool too. Mm. <laughs> a pet, a dog, a dog, definitely a dog, a golden dog. retriever, dog. A dog. <laughs> it might clog. It might clog the air. Uh, air circulation system yeah. <laughs> the hair yeah dog hair is definitely a problem yeah a hypoaller hypoallergenic dog a schnauzer and and schnauzers are relatively low mass as well if you get one of the small ones yeah exactly well thank you so much for your time andrew it was an absolute pleasure reading your book and getting to talk to you thanks very much it was a pleasure All right, and now it's time for this week in spaceflight history. See, there's a new format change. We didn't forget about it. <laughs> so what was the clue last week, Ben, and who are our winners? Yeah, so the clue last week was solidarity, and we have one winner. This is one of my uh, – I, I love it when this happens, and it happened this week. So we had multiple guesses and all were wrong except for just one. And it just makes me so happy because it means I calibrated <laughs> the clue properly. So this week, our sole winner is Jason Friesen. Yay, Jason. Good job, Jason. So this week in spaceflight history is the 15th of November, 1974. It was the launch of AMSAT Oscar 7. So AMSAT stands for Radio Amateur Satellite Corporation. In particular, this is AMSAT NA. Uh, which is uh, AMSAT North America. There are a lot of different AMSAT organizations, uh, mm. but when in this context, context, uh, it's uh, it's the North American AMSAT. So 1974, a bunch of uh, a bunch of nerds put a satellite into space, um, and as the name implies, this is the seventh one they that they put uh, on top of a rocket. But basically, these uh, these Oscar satellites are ham radio rebroadcasters or, or amateur radio rebroadcasters. I don't think that it uh, conforms to the ham standard because it's you have to use directional antennas. Mm. But anyway, basically it's this amateur satellite or this this amateur radio satellite which you can bounce signals off of. Like that's what it does. It just listens and rebroadcasts. Uh, and Oscar Seven was pretty cool because it actually um, was able to relay signals over to Oscar Six, um, and that was the first time that had ever been done by amateurs. Um, 1974. Hmm. Uh, I'm pretty sure that we had done that in the commercial sector previously. But anyway, super cool that that these things are available to amateurs. And by the way, there are still uh, Oscar satellites up in orbit. Now uh, they are a 1U CubeSat. I believe there are two that are fully active and you can go bounce signals off of them. And that's just delightful to me. Um, so anyway, this launched in 1974. By June of 1981, it failed. Uh, it's, it stopped broadcasting and, and it was considered uh, a dead satellite. And, and that's actually pretty good. Oh, Dennis says, yeah, this might have actually uh, been the, the very first time this was uh, that uh, signals were relayed between satellites. Thank you, Dennis. Sure. Dennis in the chat for now because you know, <laughs> I didn't want to interrupt you. <laughs> so, uh, so this was a, a seven-year mission, which is four years longer than the three years it was originally planned uh, to run. So, four years is is pretty good for adding on top of a three-year mission. So, around the same time, a Polish trade union uh, had morphed into a resistance group. 
they're called Fighting Solidarity, and they were resisting the communist government of Poland. And uh, they needed a way to be able to communicate across the country with other solidarity groups. And this was really difficult because the communist government had um, confiscated all radio equipment, including low-power walkie-talkies. And they'd even shut down all of the phone lines because they, you know, it, it's, a, it's a communist government and these, these regimes, you know, have to control the population uh, very tightly when they don't have the... When they don't have the population on their side. And so um, they were basically looking for ways to be able to communicate across the country. And it, it's really cool because a, a university is actually looking at using the power lines uh, that powered um, streetcars in their city and tapping into those power lines to use them as a giant antenna. <laughs> which would be pretty neat. Cool idea. Yeah. They, they ended up not doing that, um, mostly because amateur radio operators had ham equipment that they had been able to secret or secret secrete away from the government. Uh, they, they'd been able to successfully hide it. So they had ham equipment. But the problem is that if you set up a ham, uh, a ham station, it's loud, right? It's really easy to track down. It broadcasts in all directions. And, um, what they were planning on using was Morse code, which takes a long time to transmit, which means that, um, that anybody who's looking for you has a long time mm -hmm. to be able to triangulate your position. So that's a no-go. But <laughs> these resistance fighters found out that Oscar 7 wasn't dead. And uh, Oscar 7, or, or satellite communication is particularly helpful if you want to be sneaky, because you uh, have to use a narrow band like a, a tight beam radio, um, not narrow band, tight, tight beam radio transmitters to be able to hit the satellite and the satellite broadcasts back down and kind of blankets, you know, the, the area, but who cares? Uh, you're not on the satellite, so it doesn't matter. And, and so if you're, if you're using these tight beam radio transmitters, you basically have to be right on top of the transmitter before you can figure out where it is. So how the heck was Oscar seven still kicking? And by the way, um, I, not only did they hear rumors that it was still active, but they actually successfully used it to communicate um, with their uh, with their fellow resistance cells. So what happened was the satellite stopped broadcasting because the battery ended up shorting out. Um, this was one of the first uh, satellites to have you know batteries on board. Certainly not the first satellite to have batteries on board, but um, it had batteries that could get it through the nighttime eclipse and get it back around to the daytime. Uh, side of the planet where the solar panels could recharge uh, the batteries. And I'm trying to remember Oscar seven. Uh, it had something interesting with the um, power regulation circuits on board. I don't know exactly what the uh, first tier was, but they, they were regulating their power in a new way, a uh, new way for being on orbit anyway. So anyway, these batteries shorted out. And so the solar panels stopped working because the solar panels would try to charge the battery and just short straight through the battery. What is really cool is that they, the batteries later failed harder and basically broke uh, the circuit and it became an open circuit again, which means that when the solar panels tried to charge the battery, they weren't losing all of their current into the into the short circuit battery, and they were able to successfully activate the communications uh, electronics. And so you could only use Oscar 7 when it was in daylight, but it would turn on through half its orbit and then turn off through the other half of its orbit, which is really nice if you want to have a sneaky satellite that's hard mm -hmm. to track because it's, you know, only half the time can you actually see it. Um, so Fighting Solidarity used it back in 81, but the general public wasn't made aware of it still working until 2002 when a UK ham operator, Golf 4 Charlie Uniform Oscar, uh, heard about this this rumor that uh, these Polish resistance fighters had been using the satellite, and he was actually able to successfully bounce signals off of it. And today, it's actually still, you know, in this kind of quasi-usable state, this quasi-functional state. And so uh, people still use it, but I believe they mostly use it just because of the novelty of getting to use a satellite from 1974. <laughs> um, when, there, when there are, as I mentioned, uh, two other... Uh, options that are currently active and uh, and their their cubesats, but 
um, it, yeah, you can you can still go use this satellite today. I I think that's just a, a super charming uh, little nugget from spaceflight history. Forty five years and going, you know, uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we've even been uh, the the general public has been aware that it's still up and running for over 10 years they actually had like a little event when they hit uh 2012 and you know that celebrated the 10-year anniversary of mm. of rig you know regaining contact but you know amateurs regaining contact not mm -hmm. uh, not resistance fighters and so what is the clue for next week let's hope it's just as mysterious but i don't know <laughs> we'll see how this does I don't, I don't know how obscure this is but next week in 1965 the clue is how about some nice lemon gin and a bob cut i've got some visuals but i have no idea what <laughs> is referring to <laughs> i'm gonna say since it's not a single word you're probably gonna get a bunch of right answers or just one correct answer but no wrong <laughs> answers because that's uh, a very strange clue i would say people they'd have to be quite creative i think <laughs> but yeah looking at that hairstyle i would say that bob cuts were pretty popular in the 60s right so this this is definitely i mean in the clue is from 1965 so mm. and gin i don't know it does have a very <laughs> it is 60s all consistent about it yeah. Being from the 60s, yes. Yeah. Well, if you think you know what that is in reference to, just give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. So that was this week in spaceflight history, and now we do upcoming spaceflight events. That is the next thing in the format. So that part has not changed. So let's just do two events, neither one of which is a launch. Yeah, and it's kind of it's kind of the same event, isn't it? Uh, so on Tuesday the 12th, which is the day that the show comes out at 2 p.m. Eastern time, which should be within an hour of the show coming out, a couple hours. Either way, uh, maybe. So, so if you're listening <laughs> to, to your televisions. Soon, yeah, exactly. So on NASA TV, uh, we'll be broadcast the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer Overview Briefing, which is talking about uh, what the AMS is. And then at 3 p.m., they will be doing a uh, Repair Preview Briefing. Uh, that's really what you want to hit. That'll also go up on YouTube. Um, and you know I love those. So that's uh, November 12th at 2 p.m. and 3 p.m. Eastern Time. And then uh, the actual spacewalk will happen on the 15th, which is Friday. Um, coverage begins at 5.30 a.m. Eastern Time. And the spacewalk uh, begins... Doesn't say. Doesn't say when the spacewalk actually begins, but uh, it will take uh, six and a half hours minimum. That'll be uh, Luca Parmitano and Andrew Morgan. And of course, this is the first of four spacewalks that are uh, going to be happening to repair the AMS. So that is your upcoming spaceflight event. With that, let's close out the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. And speaking of which, thanks to DuckNewton97, Art of Warfare, Mofroman007 for reviews on iTunes. So that's, yeah, that was awesome. We haven't had any of those in a while. So we appreciate that. And <laughs> those are great names. I do like all of those, actually. Du Duck Newton is a uh, Adventure Zone reference. <laughs> and, and Mo Froman has been listening to the show forever. And they just, uh, in their review, they're like, oh, yeah, I forgot that I've never reviewed the show. <laughs> so for more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, T-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both. And you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye, everybody. See you.